This is the Kestrel Country Podcast, where we discuss the people, places, and events all around Kestrel Country. So, what's the program here? (laughs) Or is it all spontaneous? I'm going to just start asking you questions. Okay. And then we'll just talk about... Anything and everything. Anything and everything. Yeah. That's the way it goes. No script. Exactly. Yeah, Jim Lawrence, thanks for coming on. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, um, yeah. so you are live in Moscow now, Both but time. relatively recently. Less than a year, yes. Yeah, so let's start with just a little bit of background. Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California, uh, born in Whittier, California, near L.A., and uh, grew up in Orange County, uh, and went to school at Buena Park High School and then on to USC and LA and spent one year in New Mexico Military Institute uh, prepping for the Naval Academy where I thought oh, I originally really? was going to go to. And uh, after that? about two weeks in the military uh, academy that I was in New Mexico, and I went there because Roger Staubach had attended there before he went to the Naval Academy. I thought, good enough for Roger, good enough for me. Yeah. And he had just won the Heisman Trophy, so uh, he, he was well known. But I uh, came back and decided I didn't want a military career, and it probably didn't make sense to spend all that time in the military environment if that was not my ultimate goal in life. Yeah. Well, so was that before <clears throat> USC? Yeah, that was my freshman year in okay. college. First year living anywhere besides Southern California. It was Roswell, New Mexico. Yeah, and not really for you. Well, it, I was I watched programs on TV like Men of Annapolis, and uh, and I was gone home to serve and all that fun stuff. But then I uh, went to the military academy, which was run just like the Naval Academy, and uh, it's a lot of hazing, a lot of uh, math and science, which were not my favorite subjects. And, uh, and, and the more I thought about spending the next four years in a major that I was not adjusted to in terms of the math and science that I thought would be good for my long-term career. And then I said, you know, do I really want a military career? That'd be the main reason for going to the academy. <clears throat> so I could spend the rest of my life in, in that environment. And I, I realized now I don't think I want to do that. So yeah. it was like starting over. And were you playing football? You you played football. Right. And so I were played, you playing there as well as at USC? Yes, or? I played there. In fact, I was on scholarship because okay. uh, I was being recruited by the Naval Academy, and they arranged for that scholarship to be in New Mexico because I was low on my math scores on my uh, SATs. And uh, so I needed a year, as Roger did. In fact, I have a letter he wrote me when I was starting to question whether I wanted oh, really? to go on to the academy. So I had a two-page handwritten letter, and he, he was talking about he struggled academically initially, but got lots of help at the academy, and uh, he had a, uh, one year at New Mexico as well, and uh, tried to encourage me to continue on. And uh, I thought, here's a guy that's done very well in business after the Dallas Cowboys, but... Uh, uh, he took the time, and it was his senior year. He won his the Heisman his junior year. Okay. And then this was his senior year. 
first losing season he had ever had in football. Hmm. Uh, it was uh, a difficult year for him, him and uh, but he went on to much greater things. Yeah. So you you went to USC then, played football there. Yeah, went back. Uh, I was re still re being recruited since they heard I wasn't going to the Naval Academy, and it came down to Cal or USC, um, and uh, I, I didn't want to go to school in LA. I mean, that was the last thing I wanted to do out of high school because I lived in Southern California and hated driving to L.A. for anything. Um, and I got recruited mostly after an all-star football game I played in in high school. Uh, SC had sent me letters of interest but didn't really pursue me that much. But I had a great game in this all-star game. And all of a sudden they came knocking, but I'd already committed to the Naval Academy. And... Uh, so uh, before I went to Naval Academy, they asked me to come and visit just in case I changed my mind. And I went and saw John McKay, the head coach, and I was very impressed with the coaches. Uh, SC, you know, had been a very successful program, and uh, they had a reputation. People said, you go there, you'll never play. Hmm. And uh, after meeting with the coaches, and they told me where they thought I would fit in the program, and. Uh, uh, but they weren't promising me anything uh, in terms of uh, a playing time and so on, where other schools were saying, oh, you'll start right away, you'll do this or that. And in fact, some offers were, I found out after the fact, were uh, outside the uh, boundaries of uh, uh, legal offers. <laughs> and uh, you know, one school was going to pay for my girlfriend and her my high school girlfriend and her parents to go to all my games. And I thought, well, isn't that nice? <laughs> you, know, I got you can't do that. Uh, so, they didn't offer me anything, and it was like, we think you can play, but you got to earn it. And I like that approach. And, and I had to make a decision. Do I want to be try to be a big fish in a small pond or uh, maybe a small fish in a big pond? I said, I'll never know if I don't try. Yeah. So, so what, what position did you play? I was a wide receiver, tailback in high school, and SC was recruiting me as a, what they call a flanker back back then, which is a halfback, but uh, mostly a wide receiver. Hmm. So it fit my profile pretty well. So then you played there for three years. Played there three years. We were national champs in 1967, went to three Rose Bowl games. And, uh, three Rose Bowl games? Yeah, three in a row, wow. which was great. Yeah. And, uh, um, had a great time, and that's where I met my wife. In fact, she was in a sorority across the street from where I was in a fraternity. Okay. And what did you get your degree in? In uh, physical education. I was okay. going to be a football coach. Because that's the only thing I knew was athletics, and I said, that it makes sense to be a coach. Yeah. So you didn't have any aspirations to continue playing football? After, uh, I did. I was did drafted by the New Orleans Saints. Oh, they were. Uh, I had one serious knee injury at, at SC, uh, but I still got drafted uh, in the middle rounds. Back then, they only they had seventeen rounds in the draft, but there was few, much fewer teams, and uh, I got drafted in the eighth round um, by New Orleans, whose head coach was Tom Fears. He was an All-Pro. Uh, receiver with the LA Rams and uh, oddly enough he spoke at a Pop Warner banquet that I was involved with hmm. and I have his signed autograph on a program uh, oh, cool. that 
uh, I, I had and had, I still have for many years. So I got drafted and I also got called to play in the Coaches All-America game. They had two All-Star games in the summertime. The, the one against the pros, they used to play. Really? And then the one before that, it was a East-West uh, All-Star game. And I went, and that was back in Atlanta, Georgia. And I went back there and got hurt, a knee injury, another serious knee injury. And this was after camp had started. Mm -hmm. So I'd already spent a couple weeks in camp with New Orleans. Um, they wanted me to play. I stayed there. We tried to rehabilitate, but they said yeah, I was going to have to have surgery. And so I had surgery on the knee and, and was put on injured reserve. And spent the season. I went back after surgery and spent the season with New Orleans and traveled to all the games. Mm -hmm. Got a taste of what it was like to, yeah. to be in the pros. And I got paid, which was great. Yeah. So that was the only season. Yeah, you never, I, I could never come back. I ended up uh, re-injuring it again, uh, trying to get ready to go back the following year. Trainer came out from New Orleans and looked at my knee and says, "Don't even try. I don't have a, uh, a one ligament uh, medial collateral that was torn and that couldn't be repaired, so my knee was unstable and I couldn't plant uh, to make cuts and so on." So he said, "You know, don't bother." And after a while, I thought. You know, I think I can still play, and let's play a basketball game and tore it up for the third time. So that sort of is it. Yeah, that was can't it. play. Yeah. So, um, well, go back to the Rose. So, who did you play in your three Rose Bowls? Who we played. Play uh, first one was Bob Greasy and the Purdue Boilermakers. Yeah. Uh, and that was an exciting game. I was a redshirt sophomore. You know, freshman couldn't play back in those days. So you couldn't even play until you were a sophomore. And uh, we played Purdue, and then we played the Cinderella team, Indiana, their last time they've ever been to a Rose Bowl wow. game. Uh, they beat Ohio State and Michigan that year. Wow. Uh, and then the last year we played Ohio State, literally for the national championship. Uh, they were undefeated, I think, in the Big Ten. I think we had one loss. So back then, they, they didn't have the playoff system. They, had, yeah. they voted, and uh, we lost by touchdown to Ohio State. Oh, so that was my senior year. Devastating. Yeah. I hate Ohio State with a passion. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> having grown up in the great state of Michigan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, me. So after pro, after your season on injured reserve, uh, were you still pursuing the pot potential of coaching? Yes, I actually coached two years at Modern Day High School. I was a receiver coach, uh, and that uh, Modern Day High School back then and even now is a national powerhouse. And, but I wanted to coach, I thought, to really help kids and, and players uh, make the most of life. That was more important than uh, to something more than just the sport itself. And I quickly realized after a couple of years, uh, it's all about winning, even in high school. And I thought high school would be a place where it was more about the kids. And, and the coaches were honest with me. They'd been doing it most of their life. And they said, we'd like to, I asked them, I said, hypothetically, if you could make a difference in a kid's life or win a net or championship, which would you choose if it was an either or hypothetical, mm -hmm. you know, ridiculous question. But they all said, well, we know what the right answer probably should be, but we'd have to take championship because that was their career. At least they were honest about they it. They were honest. And 
And then I realized, you know, maybe I don't want to be a coach. Hmm. Uh, when I graduated from SC, I said, the only two things I knew for sure, and I wasn't the smartest kid on the block, but I said, I'll never go into business or work in LA. Well, two years after graduation, I commuted 68 miles one way to be in business in LA. <laughs> 68 so, miles yeah, one, one way. way. Wow. But if I left early enough, I could beat the traffic and I could make it in an hour. On going home, it was one and a half to two hour commute. So, but I love the work. I was in real estate development. Then I worked for home builder. I was in market research. So gathering data, learning the business. Yeah. Did that for four years for Party Homes, which is okay. a major builder in the West Coast. Yeah, so commuted into LA yep. to work for Party. What it, so collecting what types of data? You said market research? Well, I would research all the new homes selling tracks wherever Party built. So I would, in essence, research all the competition and write up reports about okay. sales, how well they were selling, you know, uh, subjective as well as objective uh, data, including uh, why they were or were not selling. So it was a great way to learn the business because yeah. I would visit these tracks once a quarter. So I'd see them four times a year. So I could find out were they really selling, were they really building? Because sometimes you have sales that never materialize into building an actual home. And so uh, I learned a lot just doing that full time. And you know, every quarter visiting, uh, I, I'd research a, a market area and do a report four times a year. So I learned who the good builders were and uh, what made sense, what were the best values, etc. Mm. And how did how did you find that job? Was real estate something you were interested in? No, I was just going to go in business or work in yeah. LA. Those were the two things that I knew coming out of college. But I had a friend who had been the director of market research, and he was two years older than me, and he happened to go to SC and play football, and was my big brother in the fraternity. Gotcha. And when I was all of a sudden deciding I wasn't going to be a coach, and then going, what now? And he said, well, why don't you try this? And I can hire you to, to do market research. And then I got in, and after about two years, he left, and I became the director of market research for Part E. And uh, so uh, I was starting to really feel good about that as a career and I loved it so I found that you know it wasn't what I thought it would be. Hmm. And what, what was the market like then in Southern California? Was it a boom time? Yeah when I first went into it it was a very good strong market and, and when I left four years later it was in a depression hmm. and they were laying off staff and I was one of the younger staff and they closed the research department but then back then they were able to hire me back as a consultant, so I could still do market research for them and okay. uh, just do it as an independent. The day that my boss had to tell me that uh, they were letting go so many people, and it was at Christmas time, and this would have been about seventy five, seventy six, hmm. and uh, right at Christmas time, I find out I'm out of a job. But they told me, "Here's your package, and you don't have to come in anymore." You got. Back then, I think I only got two weeks severance. And uh, so that Monday, I go back to work. And they go, well, you don't have to be here. And I said, well, I don't have anything else to do. 
So I uh, continued to work in the office for a while, and then I found a job with another home builder uh, in Long Beach Construction Company. Hmm. And did you have a family at this time? Oh, yeah. I had three kids. Yeah. And, and all mortgage, of a sudden, wow. And out of work at Christmas time. And were you still making that long of a commute? Were you living... Uh, yes, I was, and then uh, until I got the job at Long Beach, and then it was only about forty miles, forty-five okay. miles instead of sixty-eight. Yeah, and still in market research. Still, in, well, then I was doing marketing and kind of a, you know, he, Long Beach was a small company, so I had to do a lot of other things, including marketing and help market product, and got into some of the design work because I'd had a pretty good background now in analyzing product. Yeah. What what was selling? What features people yeah. wanted? Square footage. All so that I kind of so thing. I really got more involved in that part of the business than mm. the, the market research. That was just sort of something you did to get the information to then be able to analyze and make a decision. Yeah. So how long did you work for them? I did that for about a year and a half, and then I get a call from some old friends at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes where I had spent many summers working summer camps while I was in college playing football. And uh, they wanted to open an office in Orange County and they wanted me to head that up because I had the knowledge of FCA, but I also had the athletic background and uh, it would be known just from my experience at SC. Yeah, were you still pretty connected with SC? Yeah. Uh, yes. And... Uh, so uh, it was, a, at the time, a difficult decision because it was like this is a career change going into full-time ministry, and I know we prayed about it. And uh, I was making, back in those days, I was making about twenty five, thirty thousand 30000 a year, which was a good salary back then. And uh, they could only pay 15000 hmm. And I said, well, that's a significant cut. Yeah. And uh, as we prayed about it and tried to figure out, you know, is this you know, where God wants us? Is this the next move? And we decided, you know, that, that's kind of exciting to live on faith because I, I budgeted. In fact, I went back to them and said, you know, I got it where I think I can live on 17000 And they said, well, we can only offer fifteen. So that was another test of faith. And uh, I said, yeah, I think we can do this. And uh, we did it. And... Uh, and we were there for almost two years. And then I get a call from a friend in Chicago who was the area director for FCA for the Chicago area. Now, this is the ultimate test of faith. He wanted me, he was moving to the headquarters, and he wanted me to move to Chicago and take over the ministry that he had started in Chicago. And my first thought was, People are from Chicago. They don't move to Chicago. Yeah. I didn't know anybody who moved to Chicago. It's like Detroit. Yeah. It's like Detroit. You're from Detroit. Yeah. And uh, that was another interesting uh, process we went through. Because the kids and Janet, my wife, were more excited about that than I was. You know, I said, who wants to go to Chicago? And and I, I sought some counseling and talked to different people and, uh, I think one of the best advices I got during that process was uh, uh, pray for God's best, whatever it is. And that was sort of, okay. You know, I never thought about it because I was praying, is this where you want me? You know, it wasn't a right or wrong decision to go. Mm-hmm. 
And I didn't really have the heart to do it at first. <clears throat> but when I started praying for God's best, my heart started to change. And I started to get excited because they had an inner city ministry that I was kind of interested in because it's it's like a different world in the inner city. And they also you know, uh, worked with the Chicago Cubs and Bears and the White Sox you know, on the pro level and uh, set up uh, Bible studies as well as... Uh, uh, did this Sunday chapel services and so on. So uh, didn't know anybody in Chicago, never lived anywhere that it snowed. And uh, so we interviewed with the board and uh, they made the offer. And uh, we at first thought, yeah, well, let's, uh, let's sell everything and just we may be there forever. So uh, trying to sell our house and the market was dead at the time. And uh, uh Somebody suggested, why don't you lease your house? I said, well, I, I wanted to cut all ties. I didn't want to have this well, safety valve or something where I'd come home if I didn't yeah. like it. And I said, well, you know, if not selling, so put it on the market to lease at least that day for about 500 a month more than my mortgage. Well, there you go. So I'm thinking, this makes sense economically. <laughs> and uh, so we were free to go and... And went back to Chicago, and we were there almost four years. And uh, and then I just had a desire to get back involved in the church and uh, not be in a parachurch organization. And uh, and I had some opportunities back in California. And we had a house. And oddly enough, the people that had leased the house were uh, leaving, and so it was going to be vacant. So everything kind of worked together, and we were able to move back. And... Uh, went back into real estate, but also got back involved with the church that we had gone to before we had left. And so it was kind of an exciting time. We experienced record cold and record snow in Chicago. Yeah. What did you, what did you or your family think about living in Chicago? Well, everybody thought it was a great adventure, you know, going into it, how exciting it would be. And, uh, and when it started snowing before Thanksgiving, everybody was excited because you could go play and it's fluffy. And, this. and then about February, it was like, is it ever going to end? <laughs> and, uh, but they still enjoyed it. Uh, we thought we might be in trouble with our kids uh, that would not wear long pants in the wintertime because they were so used to Southern California. Our son was always in shorts. And, and even when it got to be 20, 30 degrees, he was still in shorts. So we had a few teachers talk to us about that because he was setting a bad example for all the other yeah. kids. Yeah, well, kids somehow just seem to be immune to cold. Oh, yeah, they yeah. adapt very quickly. Yeah. So back to Southern California, and you said back to real estate. Yes. So home building. Well, I started out doing some consulting, doing market research, and uh, I had an opportunity to do a, a research on a project in Downey, uh, hired by somebody I knew from church that was doing, uh, that was a head of uh, real estate for Downey Savings. They, had, they were a savings and loan, but they had a real estate subsidiary that did uh, a lot of commercial property, but they had this property in Downey that they thought they might want to do apartments or condos. And uh, so I did a, a report on that and made suggestions of what I thought would be really good and, and even some design suggestions. 
for uh, for sale condos in Downey, which is right next to L.A., so it's in a pretty solid market area. And uh, it was 104 units, and uh, I brought in a designer to design it, and they ended up hiring me to, to do the project because all their guys were commercial real estate, and none of them had residential background. Hmm. So I did that uh, for a couple of years, and uh, they had a very successful project, uh, the one we d designed and developed. And uh, and then I got a call from uh, Weyerhaeuser, which was uh, the owner of Pardee Homes. I still had those relationships. Oh. And they wanted to open up a branch office in what's called Weyerhaeuser Venture Company, which joint venture home building development around the country. Um, and because they knew me and I'm back in the business, they, they wanted me to head up the office to do that. And that was in just before the other recession. I lose track of all the different recessions I've been in, but that would have been probably 80, early 80s when the actually the SNLs were going out of business. And, um, but I went to work for them with no background in finance. And now I'm doing joint ventures, but I had a good analyst that... Uh, could do all the detail work that I didn't understand, but I understood good deals and, and negotiating deals with builders. I knew the builders, a lot of them, and uh, turned out I ended up spending the next almost 30 years with uh, Weyerhaeuser. Wow. So Weyerhaeuser, lumber company, timber company, yeah. and yet, so they were essentially investing with builders joint venture. Well, well, they became owners. They owned, oh, the, okay. the, they bought RD, they bought five home builders around the country. And mm -hmm. the interesting thing, there was a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on in real estate back then. And Wall Street was uh, pushing big companies to get into real estate. But what they did differently than Weyerhaeuser is many of them bought a home builder, a regional home builder, and tried to make them a national home builder, which was a mistake. Uh, Weyerhaeuser just uh, bought regional builders and said, do what you're doing and we'll help you do it bigger and better where you are. Hmm. So they bought five regional builders and grew those home builders. And so they allowed Party to acquire land way out in front of development so you'd have a very low land base when you got to construction. and. Hmm. And uh, Pardee was a very interesting company. Is They've been in business a long time. It was a family company. And they had never lost money in any single year in their existence. Wow. And that is almost unheard of in real estate. Wow. So very good people, very good company. And uh, I got to know them when I was at Pardee. And, uh, and some of those people were on the board of Weyerhaeuser Venture Company, which was another subset of the home builder that actually provided capital for non-Weyerhaeuser builders to build in the market areas that they were in. Hmm. So we would find, so we they said, but aren't you funding our competition? And I said, and we're sharing in their profits. So uh, we do generally 50-50 partnerships. We put up the equity and share the profits and losses 50-50. Hmm. So you said, what was there anything that you saw from you know that uh, attributed mostly to that uh, you know to party having never lost money in a single year? Were there things that was it a long term vision? Was it cost control? I mean, were there things that you, you saw that were really yeah? Made it a was difference? interesting because uh, being young and 
dumb, I guess, about a lot of things. And, and I, one time I was in a meeting with the parties and uh, talking about, we had a product in uh, San Diego County at the time was selling single family home, thousand square feet for eighteen nine ninety five, under twenty thousand. Wow. And uh, they were building and selling about two thousand of those in one location a year. Wow. And 2, but they're always analyzing costs and but they were very efficient in construction, but they weren't real exciting from a design standpoint. And I, I made a few comments about it. I said, and we don't even have front doorbells. In the competition, we'd have this and that. We don't have that. And the parties would look at each other and go, how much is a doorbell? And the construction guy would tell them, and he says, it's 2000 and would it make a difference in sales? Well, when they're the leading seller by far, and I said, probably not. <laughs> So I learned a lesson that there are some things that help sell and there are other things that uh, aren't as critical. So they're very cost conscious, but the, where they really made their money was in the land. And they knew the, the real profit is in the dirt. Hmm. Uh, if you buy it right and you hold it and you can hold it, you know, in, if you have a large piece of land, um, and they would always mark it up when they did a, a deal where they had a very little land. So now Weyerhaeuser is headquartered in Washington State, correct? Right? Um, you were working for them in Southern California. Right. Were most of the joint ventures you dealt with all in Southern California? Was that kind of your That was area? Our, our biggest market, but uh, we opened offices in Southern and Northern California. We had an office in Seattle. Uh, we had an office in Denver, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. So uh, we were spread out uh, as we tried to grow our business. And uh, in fact, over the years, we went from funding the equity, 100% warehouser money. Uh, and when we got to a certain size, uh, we had limits on how much we could capital we could use. So we started to uh, leverage that with other investors. We'd have investors on our side so that would be limited and we put up a lot more capital including at one point uh, Cowper's pension fund we got them involved in, on some big projects so we were able to go from a typical equity deal of anywhere from one to five million and now we were doing 40 50 million dollar equity deals so, wow. but that was with a lot of leverage and uh, that could have been eventually the part of the downfall because when we hit the 90s uh, when we had the uh, the real housing crisis where uh, uh, for so many years uh, the uh, Congress was uh, trying to help people get into housing and uh, they said it wasn't fair that people that couldn't afford a mortgage couldn't buy a house so they got SNLs and banks to loosen up underwriting criteria and the Wall Street had the great idea that, and we can package these mortgages up and sell them in big bundles around the world, mortgage-backed securities. So they started growing the business because we, we had this understanding of the cycles in real estate. You know, and they were typically, a good cycle would be somewhere between five and seven years. And then you knew you were on borrowed time. At some point, it's going to 
go over the edge and go the other direction. Well, we'd been in an up cycle for about 10 years. And we kept looking around and we're pre-selling in the, in, and we couldn't figure out you know, what's going on here. And it was this mortgage-backed securities because they kept getting people qualified uh, even when they weren't qualified and even when uh, the market was going down because they sort of had the attitude that it's always going to go up. Yeah. You can't lose in real estate. And uh, then when it hit, then it started to unravel. And all of these uh, lenders, lenders got off the hook because they sold them to Wall Street. So they didn't have to, they used to have to uh, uh, manage all of their portfolio of loans. And so they were very cautious. And especially if things started slowing down, they want to make sure the underwriting tightened up. And, but when you could sell a loan, uh, you know, day after you made it and, and get to your profit right away and not have the risk. Yeah. It was very attractive. And then people buying these uh, mortgage-backed securities, you couldn't even analyze them because they were so big. And and they used to say they had A, B, and C paper in these loans or these right. bundles. And, and a lot of the A paper turned to C paper real fast when the market crashed. And it was just, at that point, we almost had a, a national crisis with uh, even uh, mortgage bankers and New York, you know, that we're about ready to go out of business if the government hadn't stepped in. Yeah, which sounds extremely similar yeah. to what happened in 2007, 2008, it, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. basically the same thing. Yeah. 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 So how did Warehouser, did Warehouser then get out of the home building business then? They started, They, you know, it was interesting. They got into real estate because of pressure to diversify. Mm-hmm. And now the pressure on Wall Street companies like Warehouser was to be singularly focused. And their focus was timber. Uh, not even necessarily lumber, but timber, because they would sell Japan and around the world. They were the largest holder of uh, timberland in the world. Hmm. And uh, so their job was to shrink the company was at, at its peak around 60,000 employees. And they went down to about 20 wow. in a few years. Wow. And mostly selling off businesses like all of real estate they've been in almost 50 years. And that happened uh, for me in 2009. Uh, we were notified that uh, our, they were going to wind down our business. Uh, basically, they had a portfolio of deals that they would support until they were done. So they kept people that could finish those up, and uh, and I was in a unique position, and I was 62 at the time, and so I was, and I was the executive VP. Uh, but since we had no future business, there was no need for someone like me that did future business. Yeah, and so I got laid off as our company shrunk, and. Uh, and I got a year's severance, and then I got to get full retirement. So and you were in Seattle at this point. I was in Seattle at that point. With yeah. How long had you been? In, how long did you live in Seattle? I uh, went there in '98. Okay. So to, to I moved last year, so it's over 20 years. Yeah. What was that like moving from? Southern California to Seattle. Well, it was exciting. Our kids were all grown and out of the house, and okay. uh, 
I lived most of my life in Southern California, and uh, uh, they didn't think I would even move or consider moving from Southern California to rainy Seattle, as they used to refer to it. And uh, the president at first was trying to find someone for, because he would moved, we had a change of presidents. Uh, our president went on to become president of Warehouse of Real Estate. And uh, his appointee to be president of a venture company was in Seattle. Hmm. So voila, uh, the headquarters in Southern California was now moving to Seattle. Yeah. And all the executives. But I was a branch office, so I could have stayed. And uh, and I remember having a conversation with the, the, the new president. And uh, he's saying, well, we would have talked to you about the, the new role of chief uh, investment officer, but we knew you'd never leave Southern California. And I go, yeah, I'd leave. Because our kids were gone. And, yeah. and my house was paid for. And, uh, I you know, I lived there my whole life, but I was willing to try something different. In fact, I wanted to try something different. I'd been an investment manager at, at that point for close to 20 years and uh, it had done very well and uh, was kind of looking for a new challenge. And uh, this position would be basically over all the branch offices. So I'd have oversight for the, the all the new development that included what was going on in Chicago and D.C. and, and Colorado. So the guy was a little surprised and, and he said, well, let's talk. And it was kind of funny. We, we kept talking and he was going to make a decision between me and one other guy that was in Torrance, uh, where our headquarters was located. And uh, we were at some event and, uh, and I, I said, uh, Dan, have you made a decision? And he goes, yeah. Didn't I tell you? I said, no. He says, yeah, I, I want you to, to move to Seattle. I go, oh. I, and I said, and in this promotion, uh, did I get a raise? And he goes, oh, yeah. So I got a good package. But we had a laugh about that because he'd gone through all the process and interviewed and all that, but just forgot to tell me. And yeah. he made a decision. <laughs> and he became president of a warehouse or company oh, wow. a few years later. And... Uh, he recently, a couple of years ago, he retired, uh, and uh, so we have a big laugh about that process. So I was, I moved up in '98 to Seattle and was there until '09. Uh, yeah. So did you um, invest in real estate personally as well as real estate big, or mostly just as your yeah, role I did occasionally, you know, rental properties. Uh, I buy a home and, and use as rental property and stuff, but I really didn't like the management side of it, hmm. trying to keep track of everything and being called in the middle of the night to fix the, some plumbing problem. And so uh, as I got older, the, the more I tried to simplify my life. And uh, you know, I've done a few investments in, uh, in limited partnerships and uh, just keep an eye on some of that. And even some opportunities here in Moscow and not as highly motivated as I used to be. Yeah. I'm curious to so you were you went through a number of cycles being involved in real estate yep. and market research and understanding that. Um, have you been keeping up with trends recently and have any thoughts on where things are headed now? I mean, it, see, it feels like 
maybe not quite tenured, but you're you're what you were talking about having ten years of run up when you felt that that was overdue. Um, seems like we're kind of in a similar. Yeah, it's changed cycle. a lot uh, uh, because the world changed a lot. Uh, you know, back in in the '60s, and you know, people were still looking for homes where they could raise a family and. Uh, the demographics was different, uh, you know, as, as we've added more and more, in fact, uh, story, uh, when we bought our house that we owned for 35 years in Mission Viejo, it was a new development. In those days, uh, a wife's income was not considered in the valuation of a loan. If you had a two-party or a husband and wife both working, because they always felt uh, lenders used to think, and rightfully so, a lot of times women, you know, once you get married, you start having kids, you're not going to be full-time in the workforce. So they were reluctant to uh, qualify a loan based on two incomes, and they just started to change that. Hmm. In uh, this would have been in early '70s, where the wife's income would count, and because more and more women were working full-time, and it was all a part of that whole generation shift, uh, you know, postponing kids. In fact, when I was in college, it was, the pressure was, uh, you know, we can't feed the world, there's going to be this global food crisis, and so you can't afford to have more than two kids, and, uh, you know, even if you want to have kids at all, and and sort of an anti-family, anti-biblical view of the world, and... uh, and then they found out they came up with much better techniques and, and science in, in agriculture, and all of a sudden they could produce a lot more food than they thought. Mm-hmm. And so the world wasn't going to come to that because of overpopulation. That was the big thrust. And then we had the oil crisis. But through these changes, uh, you know, kids are a lot more, in fact, back then, you know, had a lot of people that would go work for a company and spend their whole life there. Now that's almost not heard of. Yeah, uh, right. So you got a more transient population, different type of housing, fewer kids for the most part other than people who go to Christchurch or live in Moscow. Uh, and it's changed the, the global dynamics, including a lot of foreigners that have different cultural needs. So it's a little harder to track housing because it used to be all regional builders and it was always a regional business. Mm-hmm. Now so much of the United States is dominated by national builders that are in all the markets, and and they have more tools to play with in terms of how they deal with markets. And used to work uh, or compete with some of the big national builders and buy. And when we did joint ventures, we're doing them with small, medium-sized builders, and we'd be competing against a uh, Coughlin and Broad or a large national builder. And they can go into a market and, and tie up all the available land. And the way they negotiate is they tie it up, whatever the price is, they'll tie it up at that price. They don't start really getting serious until it's getting close to escrow closing. And then they come back and say, we're not going to close unless you lower the price to this. Hmm. And they do that in all the available land. And then some buyers have to sell and they give in and discount significantly at the last minute. Mm. And so they were always getting the best land deals because of the way they operated. Uh, 
And so they could control a market pretty well and, uh, and, and make a lot more money that way. And when you've got the low basis in land price, so, you know, that changed over the years as more national builders. And when we had the big SNL crisis in, uh, in the country and, and builders like Lennar out of Florida, you know, moved to California. They had never been in California. And uh, when they came, they came with deep pockets and then they could buy up a lot of the land that was now selling for less than, in some cases, almost less than zero. Uh, that would have been in the early 90s, I believe, when that was starting to hit. And so they dominated those markets. And uh, So it's a little harder to keep up today. And now you're living in a, a small town like Moscow. Uh, you know, they don't operate by the same yeah. guidelines at all because you don't have big buildings. You don't even hardly have regional builders. No. And it's hard yeah. to get subs. Uh you have a very dynamic market. You got a lot of interest in this area, and I find that fascinating. So I, I kind of observe and uh, and I see the differences. I'm not sure I understand how you build in this area unless you can do it uh, for cash and not have a lot of uh, financial risk. Because what caused a lot of problems for builders is you get a big construction loan going, and uh, time is your enemy. You're right. And if you get delayed uh, for whatever reason, and then you come to market and the market is tipped, uh, there's not much recovery. The bank all of a sudden wants to be paid off. And during some of the down cycles, they were calling their loans in the middle of construction. Hmm. So you have a construction commitment, and uh, and they say the value's dropped. Uh, you need to put more equity in. Well, you're already at a break even. Put more equity is just going to be a bigger loss. So builders would end up going bankrupt or out of business, and the banks would then take over all these partially built projects or not built, and uh, then they would need to get those off the books, and they would sell them at deep discounts, and the big builders come in and, and make hay while they could. So all of that is, you know, the whole world has changed in the last 20 years as far as real estate, and uh, much more difficult, I think, to analyze what's going on. And uh, there's been a consolidation. You still have the big nationals, and you always have a place for the small regional, but the, you really have to know what you're doing if you're in a small market. You can't come in as an outsider and, unless it's all cash. But most builders, they make their money on leverage and you yeah. know, not have a lot of money at risk, and uh, pretty difficult to do today. Yeah. Well, interesting what you were saying about. Uh, you know, by making your money on the land yep. and having bought the land right and then having the ability to discount if you need to, yep. you know, to make it work. Yeah, when you have a, when you're, in fact, in the hot markets, the problem is the prices keep going up on the land. So if you come in late and buy land, you're at, the, at market plus, and any dip in the market, you're underwater real fast. And so that's why everybody leverages it with loans, but then the risk is they call a loan before you get a chance to build. And that's your source of repayment is to build and sell the house. Yeah. But if you can't get it built, you lose the land and everything you got in it. Yeah. So it makes it a tough business. And people don't realize that and they think they're making all this money. Well, it used to be uh, in the 50s and the uh, early 60s, 
built, most small builders, regional builders, it was boom and bust. You'd have a boom year and then you'd have extra cash and you'd go buy some land and the next cycle you'd bust and lose it all. And they were constantly going in and out of business and changing their names. And they do all right individually, but as a company, it was, uh, it was an interesting process to look at in hindsight and see how many of these builders would do real well in good times and lose it all in the bad times. Yeah. Give it back. So were you able to avoid some of that with Warehouser? Um, those boom and busts, and if uh, so, what were there any principles that you followed? To well, we, it was interesting at the end when we were trying to justify our existence and going forward and lessons learned. And uh, and I remember uh, in the '80s when the first SNL crisis hit, uh, we had this meeting with all the executives to, to talk about lessons learned and. Uh, and I, I kept looking at, you know, I said, you know, we didn't violate any underwriting, you know, in terms of these bad deals that went bad. And uh, so everybody's going and giving their opinion. Well, when we come out of this, the next cycle, we're just only going to do business with the biggest and best builders and well-financed and so on and so forth. They had all these lessons learned. And I, I didn't know what to say. And I, I wasn't going to say anything. And finally, the president looked at me and said, you haven't said anything. What, what do you, what's your input? And I said... Beware of lessons learned. <laughs> and uh, they kind of laughed. I said, because everything we did two years ago was right, mm. given the time. What we didn't do well is anticipate the downturn, which you can't do. You don't know when it's going to happen. And I said, because if you analyze our projects and some of our biggest and best projects, were worthless two years after we got into them. And you don't know what the deal's going to do for probably at least two years. So you, you make investments based on the future. And I said, uh, if we're going to, I said, the big builders don't need us in the good times. So you, if you come up with this underwriting criteria that says you're only going to do business with the biggest and the best, well, when it gets really good, they don't want us. They don't want to share profits or the risk because they don't think there's much risk. Because in the, in the up market, uh, you can make a lot of mistakes. In fact, I used to make a comment that when the, when you were just in the beginning of an upturn, uh, when you underwrite it, I would say, don't ask a lot of questions because the market will ba bail us out. And you will miss deals if you overanalyze them because mm -hmm. it's always a moving market. But if you know you're in the beginning of an up cycle, which you generally know when things are getting good, you do as many deals as you can. I said, the problem is you don't know when to stop. Because in hindsight, you would stop right at the peak. Yeah. When it's the hardest time to stop. But you can't time the market. You can't time the market, and you don't want to, because at that time, even your bad decisions still made good money. I said, for us to avoid much of that, we would have had to quit, you know, five years before the market really hit the skids, or at least three years, and who's not going to want to do a deal in the midst of a hot market? You're always tempted to do that deal, and you know, I remember underwriting deals and saying, well, we have to put in appreciation, price appreciation, because we know it's coming, and if you don't, it won't work on paper. Yeah. Because you've paid too much for the land. And if you use that as your basis with no appreciation, that it, you can't, it won't pencil. 
And so it got very difficult to do deals in good markets unless you play games with the numbers. Yeah. And uh, so he started putting in 2% appreciation a year for three or four years, and that's why we can justify this price today. Well, again, that's, that's when things get dangerous. That's when it gets dangerous. Yeah. So, uh, you know, leverage then is your enemy. Uh, and, and we specialize in leverage because by doing leverage, even as an investor, you know, we were getting 30, 40% ROIs because it was mostly other people's money. When it's 100% your money, you don't get those kind of returns, but you get safety. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why if you have the cash, and some people do, they build out of pocket, um, you know, the worst thing for them is that they have to uh, take a little longer to get the money back. But they generally don't lose because they don't have a mortgage lender uh, or construction lender that's threatening to take over the project. But then what's your return on the dollars out that you had out for four or five years? Well, may not be that good, but it's positive. Yeah. And uh, most people are looking for the better return, so that's where leverage comes in. It can be your friend and then turns out to be your enemy. Hmm. Unless you got deep pockets and you can pay off construction lenders. Yeah. So that's why it's a it's not a business for the weak need. And I, I, I worked with a lot of young builders that thought they were really smart because they got into the business in an up cycle. And everything they did was profitable. So they thought they were smart. But when it went the other way, it was amazing to say, well, it's not my fault. Because we'd be talking about losses and say, how are we going to do this? Because often they would have to pony up cash because we had 100% of the loss with our equity. They hadn't had any loss. And they didn't want to share in losses then, even though they signed up for it. Hmm. And they thought, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the market. Well, that's your job. <laughs> and uh, they just wanted all the accolades and the profits and the good times, but they didn't want to show the downside. Yeah. Oh, Warehouser can afford it. They're a big company. Well, that's not what we signed up for. Right. Well, kind of closing thoughts, closing things here, bringing it full circle back around to Moscow. So, Southern California, born and raised, lived in LA, worked in LA, lived in Chicago, back to Southern California, Seattle, big city. What's it been like living in a tiny little town in North Idaho? It's been great. <laughs> you know, as I got older, I, you know, it, we were, when we uh, decided to move, we originally started, decided to move about two years ago because we lived on the edge of downtown Seattle. But our church was in Bothell, Woodville area, which was about 15, 20 miles north of downtown and heavy traffic and difficult to get to anything in the weeknight. And as we were getting older, we said, we got to move closer to the church. So our goal was to move to Bothell, Woodville. And then uh, we got invited by some friends to come and visit Moscow. First time I'd ever been in Moscow was a year ago, February. And I liked it. I liked the idea of a small town and yeah. you know, get every place you want in five or ten minutes, and uh, and that was great. And then uh, uh, we came out in February to actually look uh, just to appease a friend who was bugging us to come and look at Moscow. So we looked. I say, yeah, it's a nice town, but 
didn't see any housing that appealed to us. I didn't want to be in a track home or in a small lot. And then uh, we came back for high school graduation last June. And uh, our friend came out and said, I found you a house. And we said, well, we've heard that about 20 times <laughs> in the last six months. And uh, lo and behold, we went and looked at uh, the morning of graduation. And, uh, and it had everything we wanted and then some on 2.8 acres near downtown. It wasn't 10 or 15 minutes outside town. Being old and tired, I don't want to have to work too much, and especially on if it's cold and icy. I've been on icy roads a lot in Chicago. Yeah. It's not much fun. No. So uh, we looked at a house and then we found a good broker that helped us uh, and we weren't going to do a bidding war. And uh, we said, and, and I kind of thought, you know, this house is going to sell fast. And Well, unfortunately, the rest of our conversation got cut off due to some technical difficulties that we are ironing out. But we're very grateful for Jim coming on. Great conversation. and appreciate his years of experience and wisdom and sharing them with us. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and look forward to uh, you joining us next time. Thanks for joining us. Like, share, subscribe. We'll see you next week.